Volume One, Chapter Fourth of the Antiquary. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Antiquary by Sir Walter Scott, Chapter Fourth. The pocky old carly came o'er the weed, with money good eins and good morrows to me, saying, "Kind sir, for your courtesy, will you lodge a silly poor man?" The Gaberlunzi Man. Our two friends moved through a little orchard. Where the aged apple trees, well loaded with fruit, showed, as is usual in the neighborhood of monastic buildings, that the days of the monks had not always been spent in indolence, but often dedicated to horticulture and gardening. Mr. Oldbuck failed not to make a level remark that the planters of those days were possessed of the modern secret of preventing the roots of the fruit trees from penetrating the till, and compelling them to spread in a lateral direction. By placing paving stones beneath the trees when first planted, so as to interpose between their fibres and the subsoil. This old fellow, he said, which was blown down last summer and still, though half reclined on the ground, is covered with fruit, has been, as you may see, accommodated with such a barrier between his roots and the unkindly till. That other tree has a story. The fruit is called the abbot's apple. The lady of a neighboring baron was so fond of it that she would often pay a visit to Monkbarns to have the pleasure of gathering it from the tree. The husband, a jealous man belike, suspected that a taste so nearly resembling that of Mother Eve prognosticated a similar fall. As the honor of a noble family is concerned, I will say no more on the subject. Only that the lands of Lockard and Cringlecut still pay a fine of six bowls of barley annually. To atone the guilt of their audacious owner, who intruded himself and his worldly suspicions upon the seclusion of the abbot and his penitent, admire the little belfry rising above the ivy-mantled porch. There was here a hospitium, hospitala or hospitamentum, for it is written all these various ways in the old writings and evidence, in which the monks received pilgrims. I know our minister has said in the statistical account. That the hospitium was situated either in the lands of Haltweary or upon those of Halfstarvet, but he is incorrect, Mister Lovell. That is the gate called still the Palmer's Port, and my gardener found many hewn stones when he was trenching the ground for winter celery, several of which I have sent as specimens to my learned friends, and to the various antiquarian societies of which I am an unworthy member. But I will say no more at present. I reserve something for another visit, and we have an object of real curiosity before us. While he was thus speaking, he led the way briskly through one or two rich pasture meadows to an open heath or common, and so to the top of a gentle eminence. Here, he said, Mister Lovell is a truly remarkable spot. It commands a fine view," said his companion, looking around him. True. But it is not for the prospect I brought you hither. Do you see nothing else remarkable, nothing on the surface of the ground? Why, yes, I do see something like a ditch, indistinctly marked. Indistinctly, pardon me, sir, but the indistinctness must be in your powers of vision. Nothing can be more plainly traced, a proper agger or a vallum, with its corresponding ditch or fossa. Indistinctly, why, heaven help you! 
the lassie, my niece, as light-headed a goose as womankind affords, saw the traces of the ditch at once. Indistinct. Why, the great station at Arduck, or that at Brunswark and Annandale, may be clearer, doubtless, because there are state of forts, whereas this was only an occasional encampment. Indistinct. Why, you must suppose that fools, boars, and idiots have ploughed up the land, and, like beasts and ignorant savages, have thereby obliterated two sides of the square, and greatly injured the third. But you see yourself the fourth side is quite entire. Lovell endeavoured to apologise and to explain away his ill-timed phrase, and pleaded his inexperience. But he was not at once quite successful. His first expression had come too frankly and naturally, not to alarm the antiquary, and he could not easily get over the shock it had given him. "'My dear sir,' continued the senior, "'your eyes are not inexperienced. You know a ditch from level ground, I presume, when you see them.' "'Indistinct. Why, the very common people, the very least boy that can hurt a cow, calls it the came of kin prunes, and if that does not imply an ancient camp, I am ignorant what does. Lovell having again acquiesced, and at length lulled to sleep the irritated and suspicious vanity of the antiquary, he proceeded in his task of Cicerone. You must know, he said, our Scottish antiquaries have been greatly divided about the local situation of the final conflict between Agricola and the Caledonians. Some contend for Arduck in Strathallan, some for Enerpeffery, some for the Rydikes in the Mearns, and some are for carrying the scene of action as far north as Blair and Atoll. Now, after all this discussion, continued the old gentleman, with one of his slyest and most complacent looks, what would you think, Mr. Lovell, I say, what would you think, if the memorable scene of conflict should happen to be on the very spot called the Came of Kin Prunes? the property of the obscure and humble individual who now speaks to you. Then, having paused a little to suffer his guest to digest a communication so important, he resumed his disquisition in a higher tone. Yes, my good friend, I am indeed greatly deceived that this place does not correspond with all the marks of that celebrated place of action. It was near to the Grampian Mountains. Lo, yonder they are mixing and contending with the sky on the skirts of the horizon. It was in conspectu classis, in sight of the Roman fleet. And would any admiral, Roman or British, wish a fair bay to ride in, than that on your right hand? It is astonishing how blind we professed antiquaries sometimes are. Sir Robert Sibbald, Saunders Gordon, General Roy, Dr. Stokely, why, it escaped all of them. I was unwilling to say a word about it till I had secured the ground, for it belonged to old Johnny Howie, a bonnet laird, hard by and many a communion we had before he and I could agree. Reader's note. A bonnet laird signifies a petty proprietor wearing the dress along with the habits of a yeoman. End reader's note. At length I am almost ashamed to say it, but I even brought my mind to give acre for acre of my good cornland for this barren spot. But then it was a national concern, and when the scene of so celebrated an event became my own, I was overpaid. Whose patriotism, 
would not grow warmer, as old Johnson says, on the plains of Marathon. I began to trench the ground to see what might be discovered, and the third day, sir, we found a stone, which I have transported to Monkbarns, in order to have the sculpture taken off with plaster of Paris. It bears a sacrificing vessel, and the letters A.D.L.L., which may stand, without much violence, for Agricola, decavit Libens Lubens. Certainly, sir, for the Dutch antiquaries claim Caligula as the founder of a lighthouse, on the sole authority of the letters C.C.P.F., which they interpret, Caius Caligula Farum Fesset. True, and it has ever been recorded as a sound exposition. I see we shall make something of you even before you wear spectacles, notwithstanding you thought the traces of this beautiful camp indistinct when you first observed them. In time, sir, and by good instruction, you will become more apt, I doubt it not. You shall peruse upon your next visit to Monkbarns my trivial essay upon castrametation, with some particular remarks upon the vestiges of ancient fortifications, lately discovered by the author at the Came of Kinprunes. I think I have pointed out the infallible touchstone of supposed antiquity. I premise a few general rules on that point, on the nature, namely, of the evidence to be received in such cases. Meanwhile, be pleased to observe, for example, that I could press into my service Claudian's famous line, Illa Claudinuis posuit qui costra pruinis, for pruinis, though interpreted to mean hoar-frost, to which I own we are somewhat subject in this northeastern sea-coast, may also signify a locality, namely prunes. The costra pruinis posita would therefore be the came of kin prunes, but I waive this, for I am sensible it might be laid hold of by cavaliers, as carrying down my costra to the time of Theodosius, sent by Valentinian into Britain as late as the year 367, or thereabout. No, my good friend, I appeal to people's eyesight. Is not here the Decumon gate? And there, but for the ravage of the horrid plough, as a learned friend calls it, would be the Praetorian gate. On the left hand you may see some slight visages of the Porta Sinistra, and on the right, one side of the Porta Dextra, well nigh entire. Here, then, let us take our stand on this tumulus, exhibiting the foundation of ruined buildings, the central point, the praetorium, doubtless, of the camp. From this place, now scarce to be distinguished, but by its slight elevation and its greener turf, from the rest of the fortification, we may suppose Agricola to have looked forth on the immense army of Caledonians, occupying the declivities of yon opposite hill, the infantry rising rank over rank, as the form of ground displayed their array to its utmost advantage, the cavalry and coenari, by which I understand the charioteers, another guise of folks from your Bond Street four-in-hand men, I trow, scouring the more level space below. See then, level, see, see that huge battle moving from the mountains, their gilt coats shine like dragon scales, their march like a rough tumbling storm. See them, and view them, and then see Rome no more. 
"'Yes, my dear friend, from this stance it is probable, nay, it is nearly certain, that Julius Agricola beheld what our Beaumont has so admirably described, from this very praetorium.' A voice from behind interrupted his ecstatic description. "'Praetorian here, praetorian there, I mind the biggie knot.' Both at once turned round, Lovell with surprise, and Oldbuck with mingled surprise and indignation, at so uncivil an interruption. An auditor had stolen upon them, unseen and unheard, amid the energy of the antiquary's enthusiastic declamation, and the attentive civility of Lovell. He had the exterior appearance of a mendicant, a slouched hat of huge dimensions, a long white beard which mingled with his grizzled hair an aged but strongly marked and expressive countenance, hardened, by climate and exposure, to a right brick-dust complexion, a long blue gown, with a pewter badge on the right arm, two or three wallets, or bags, slung across his shoulder, for holding the different kinds of meal, when he received his charity, in kind, from those who were but a degree richer than himself. All these marked at once a beggar by profession, and one of that privileged class which are called in Scotland the king's beadsmen, or vulgarly, blue gowns. "'What is that you say, Eddie?' said old Buck, hoping, perhaps, that his ears had betrayed their duty. "'What were you speaking about?' "'About this bit borock, your honour,' answered the undaunted Eddie. "'I mind the biggie not.' "'The devil you do.' "'Why, you old fool, it was here before you were born, and will be, after you are hanged, man.' "'Hanged or drowned, here or why, dead or alive, I mind the biggie knot.' "'You, you, you,' said the antiquary, stammering between confusion and anger. "'You strolling old vagabond, what the devil do you know about it?' "'Oy, I ken this about monk barns, and what profit have I for telling ye a lie? "'I just ken this about it.' that about twenty years sign, I and a ween hollin shackers like myself, and the massin lads that built the lang dyke that guys down the loaning, and twy three herds maybe, just set to work and build this bit thing here that ye ca the the praetorian, and I just for a beeld it eyed Iken drum's bridle, and a bit blithe guy down with hidint, some sire runny weather. Mereby token monk barns, if ye hike up the borock, as ye seem to have begun, ye'll find if ye had not found it already, I stain the line o' the massin collants, cut the laddle and to have a board at the bridegroom, and he put four letters on't, that's I D L N, Iken drums lang lytle, for Iken was ain o' the kale suppers o' fife. This, thought Lovell to himself, is a famous counterpart to the story of Kipe on thy side. He then ventured to steal a glance at our antiquary, but quickly withdrew it in sheer compassion. For, gentle reader, if thou hast ever beheld the visage of a damsel of sixteen, whose romance of true love has been blown up by an untimely discovery, or of a child of ten years, whose castle of cards has been blown down by a malicious companion, I can safely aver to you that Jonathan Oldbuck of Monk Barnes, looked neither more wise nor less disconcerted. "'There is some mistake about this,' he said, abruptly turning away from the mendicant. "'Dan the bit on my side of the way,' answered the sturdy beggar. "'I never do the mistakes, 
they aye bring mischances. Now, Mike Barnes, that young gentleman that's with your honour, thinks little of a carly like me, and yet I'll wager I'll tell him where he was yestern at the gloamin. Only he may be one to like to hae spoken on in company. Lovell's soul rushed to his cheeks, with the vivid blush of two and twenty. Never mind the old rogue, said Mr. Oldbuck. Don't suppose I think the worse of you for your profession. They are only prejudiced fools and coxcombs that do so. You remember what old Tully says in his oration, Pro Archia Poeta, concerning one of your confraternity. Quis nostrum tam anino agresti octuro fuit ut ut. I forget the Latin. The meaning is, which of us was so rude and barbarous as to remain unmoved at the death of the great Roscius, whose advanced age was so far from preparing us for his death, that we rather hoped one so graceful, so excellent in his art, ought to be exempted from the common lot of mortality? So the Prince of Orders spoke of the stage and its professor. The words of the old man fell upon Lovell's ears, but without conveying any precise idea to his mind, which was then occupied in thinking by what means the old beggar, who still continued to regard him with a countenance provokingly sly and intelligent, had contrived to thrust himself into any knowledge of his affairs. He put his hand in his pocket as the readiest mode of intimating his desire of secrecy, and securing the concurrence of the person whom he addressed and while he bestowed on him an alms, the amount of which rather bore proportion to his fears than to his charity, looked at him with a marked expression, which the mendicant, a physiognomist by profession, seemed perfectly to understand. "'Never mind me, sir, I am no tail-pight, but there are my ain in the world than mine,' answered he as he pocketed Lovell's bounty but in a tone to be heard by him alone, and with an expression which amply filled up what was left unspoken. Then turning to old Buck, I am away to the mines, your honour. Has your honour any word there, or to Sir Arthur, for I'll come in by Knockwinnock Castle again in. Old Buck started as from a dream, and in a hurried tone, where vexation strove with the wish to conceal it, paying at the same time a tribute to Eddie's smooth, greasy, unlined hat, he said, "'Go down, go down to Monkbarns. Let them give you some dinner. Or stay, if you do go to the man's, or to Knockwinnock. You need say nothing about the foolish story of yours.' "'Who, hi?' said the mendicant. "'Lord bless your honour. Nobody said ken a word about it from me. Mere than if the bit Borak had been there since Noah's flood.' But, Lord, they tell me your honour has gained Johnny Howie acre for acre of the lay crofts for this hearthery no. Now, if he has really imposed the work on ye for an ancient work, it's my real opinion the bargain will never hide good if you'll just bring down your heart to try it at the law and say that he beguiled ye. Provoking scoundrel, muttered the indignant antiquary between his teeth. I'll have the hangman's lash and his back acquainted for this and then, in a louder tone, "'Never mind, Eddie, it is all a mistake.' "'Troth, I am thinking so,' continued his tormentor, who seemed to have pleasure in rubbing the galled wound. "'Troth, I thought so, 
and it's no sign lang since I said to Lucky Gemmers. Never think ye, Lucky, said I, that his owner Mark Burns would have done sick a daft thing like this, as to guy grooned wheel worth fifty shillings an acre, for a mailing that would be dear a pod Scots. Nay, nay, quoth I, depend upon the lard's being imposed upon with that wily do-little devil, Johnny Howie. But, Lord, how to care us, sirs, how can that be, quoth she again, when the laird say book-learned, there's no like thy him in the countryside, and Johnny Howie is hardly sense enough to kye the cows out o' his kale-yard. Weel, weel, quoth I, but you'll hear his circumvented him with some of his old word-stories. For ye can, laird, ye another time about the bottle that ye thought was an oid coin. Go to the devil, said old Buck, and then in a more mild tone, as one that was conscious his reputation lay at the mercy of his antagonist, he added, Away with you down among barns, and when I come back, I'll send ye a bottle of ale to the kitchen. Heaven reward your honour. This was uttered with the true mendicant wine, as, setting his pike-staff before him, he began to move in the direction of Monkbarns. But did your honour, turning around, ever get back the siller ye guy to the travelling pack men for the bottle? Curse thee! Go about thy business. Aweel, aweel, sir. God bless your honour. I hope you're doing Johnny Howie yet, and that I'll live to see it. And so saying, the old beggar moved off, relieving Mr. Oldbuck of recollections which were anything rather than agreeable. "'Who is this familiar old gentleman?' said Lovell, when the mendicant was out of hearing. "'Oh, one of the plagues of the country. I've been always against poor's rates and a workhouse. I think I'll vote for them now, to have that scoundrel shut up. Oh, your old-remembered guest of a beggar becomes as well acquainted with you as he is with his dish.' as intimate as one of the beasts familiar to man which signify love, and with which his own trade is especially conversant. Who is he? Why, he has gone the vole, has been soldier, ballad-singer, travelling tinker, and is now a beggar. He is spoiled by our foolish gentry, who laugh at his jokes, and rehearse Eddie Ochiltree's good things as regularly as Joe Miller's. Why, he uses freedom, apparently, which is the soul of wit, answered Lovell. Oh, ay, freedom enough, said the antiquary. He generally invents some damned improbable lie or another to provoke you, like that nonsense he talked just now, not that I'll publish my tract, until I've examined the thing to the bottom. In England, said Lovell, such a mendicant would get a speedy check. Yes, your churchwardens and dog-whips would make slender allowance for his vein of humour, but here, curse him, he's a sort of privileged nuisance, one of the last specimens of the old-fashioned Scottish mendicant, who kept his rounds within a particular space, and was the news-carrier, the minstrel, and sometimes the historian of the district. That rascal now knows more old ballads and traditions than any other man in this and the four next parishes. And, after all, continued he, softening as he went on describing Eddie's good gifts, the dog has some good humour. He has borne his hard fate with unbroken spirits, and it's cruel to deny him the comfort of a laugh at his betters. The pleasure of having quizzed me, as you gay folk would call it, will be meat and drink to him for a day or two. But I must go back and look after him, or he will spread his damned nonsensical story over half the country. 
So saying, our heroes parted, Mr. Oldbuck to return to his hospitium at Monkbarns, and Lovell to pursue his way to Fairport, where he arrived without farther adventure. Editor's Note C. Praetorium. It may be worth while to mention that the incident of the supposed Praetorium actually happened to an antiquary of great learning and acuteness, Sir John Clerk of Penincuic, one of the barons of the Scottish court of Exchequer, and a parliamentary commissioner for arrangement of the union between England and Scotland. As many of his writings show, Sir John was much attached to the study of Scottish antiquities. He had a small property in Dumfrieshire, near the Roman station on the hill called Burnswark. Here he received the distinguished English antiquarian Roger Gale, and of course conducted him to see this remarkable spot, where the lords of the world have left such decisive marks of their martial labors. An aged shepherd, whom they had used as a guide, or who had approached them from curiosity, listened with mouth agape to the dissertations on Foss and Vellum, Ports Dextra, Sinistra, and Decumana, which Sir John Clerk delivered ex cathedra, and his learned visitor listened with the deference to the dignity of a connoisseur on his own ground. But when the Cicerone proceeded to point out a small hillock near the centre of the enclosure as the praetorium, Corydon's patience could hold no longer, and, like Eddie Ochiltree, he forgot all reverence, and broke in with nearly the same words, Praetorium here, Praetorium there, I made the bork myself with a flaxter spade. The effect of this undeniable evidence on the two-lettered sages may be left to the reader's imagination. The late excellent and venerable John Clerk of Eldon, the celebrated author of Naval Tactics, used to tell this story with glee, and being a younger son of Sir John's, was perhaps present on the occasion. End Editor's Note End Chapter Fourth